0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. On today's show, we'll be discussing a thrilling, controversial and at times quite sad draw between India and Australia at the SCG. Is Tim Payne's tenure as captain coming towards an end? Will India be forced to field Ravi Shastri in the final game of the series? And we'll be previewing England's series against Sri Lanka that gets underway this Thursday, where pod favourite Dan Lawrence is likely to make his England test debut. I'm Yasrana and with me over Zoom is the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. The Managing Editor of Wisden.com, Ben Gardner, and the Editor-in-Chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. The Sydney test was one of the most incident-packed tests I can remember for quite a while. India made accusations of racial abuse from members of the SCG crowd on consecutive days. Tim Payne received criticism for some of his behaviour on day five, which he has since unreservedly apologised for. And a couple of smaller incidents that have garnered quite a lot of attention elsewhere. But before we get into all that, it was an amazing test purely on the field as well. Ben, an amazing result for India given how depleted they are at the moment. Rahul Mansaria asked, has India's performance in the last two tests, after being 36 all out and with all their injuries, been more impressive than their win in 2018?
1: Yeah, quite, quite possibly. I mean I mean from a from a sort of a courage point of view, certainly. I mean you also gotta consider this as a Stronger Australia side than back then with Smith in for, for all three tests and with Warner in it for for this one as well. Um, so yeah, I'd so say that yeah, the, the courage point is is amazing and on so many levels really. I mean, there's the sort of the, the very wide context of the you know the pandemic. A lot of these players have been away from home for five months. The most sort of uh, significant you'd say was Mohamed Siraj, who's sort of a, who's not gone to his father's funeral to to play a part in this series. Uh, and then slightly sort of coming in slightly you've got all the injuries they've been through like they're pretty much all, almost missing a whole first choice 11 pretty much for the final test with the news that Bumra as well might be injured uh, but especially on that final day you had Alam Mugohari on one hamstring without his, uh, with, with, a, with a bad back you had Jadeja padded up with a thumb so badly broken that his teammates having to peel his bananas for him yeah and obviously Cody not there the whole time I think so Adyash Sharma, the Wizard India editor, wrote a really nice piece about how this, this draw especially was kind of a combination of the traits of Virat Kohli and Rahane. You had Kohli's sort of like combativeness, the never say die thing, the sort of, you know, not, not giving an inch at any point. And you had Rahane's sort of ability to, to rise above it and stay cool the whole time, which I think they, they by and large, did. Yeah, I think it was a, a, a magnificent performance. And I don't think you'll see like many more courageous, really, in, in Test cricket.
0: Mm. I mean, it is worth just listing through the players India have unavailable to them at the moment. You've got Kohli, Ishan Sharma, Mohamed Shami, Umesh Yadav, Ravi Jadeja is definitely out the fourth test. Possibly too. possibly Bahari, Kael Rahul's out, possibly Aguil out as well and possibly Ashwin. Washington Sundar, who has only played 12 first-class games, is tipped for a debut, despite not actually being in the squad at the moment. Phil, what impressed you most from India's performance in that test?
2: I would say... I would say the guts and the scrap and the fight, I suppose. It, it would have to be that. Uh, they. You have to take yourself back to the 36 all out, really, and and the calls for people to be retired on the back of it. And it seemed like the whole edifice of Indian cricket was kind of collapsing in on itself. And then from then on, to have played, uh, as Ben says, a kind of courageous form of cricket up until this point and to be 1-0 over the last two games... Uh, is, is an extraordinary comeback really, Sean of their leader um, who 's more than a captain and a number four uh, to be able to to galvanize themselves and turn it around. Um, I, I do have something to add on the second test uh, I, I put twenty quid on India to win it at seven to one, um, so I've, I was feeling quite chipper after that, and then went and did the same thing for the last test match at seven to two. Um, that was probably a mistake on on, on reflection. But uh, considering they were Australia were two hundred for two at the end of the first day, considering they were on the the wrong end of a toss, uh, considering the injuries that piled up over the course of the game, and considering having to bat for four sessions and a bit, it's an it's an extraordinary achievement, really. Um, and it's also, and this is all I'll say, really. It, it's it's a it's an achievement for the game itself, and and yet yet again. The test game has uh, eclipsed itself, um, and one of the one of the nice elements of uh, the kind of all for one, one for all wildness of social media is that when test cricket has a good good week, and my word, it's had a good week, and it's had more than a good week in in recent times. On top of how much people need it, and that's been quite evident as well. On top of all of that, you feel like that the, the test game has received another little shot in the arm um and the great and the good the old and the young Australians Indians and all around the world the buzz around this this test series has, has captured every cricket lover's imagination and every time test cricket has a good week you feel like uh, there's a little bit more life in the old in the old dog and and so yeah I think we all stagger out of that amazing game feeling energized by what by what we're we're so committed to and what we spend so much time debating and discussing. So, yeah, it was great to see. Really great to see.
0: I think what captured people's imaginations more than most was Rishabh Pant's 97 on day five. It gave India a fighting chance of, of actually winning that game as well. When Rahane uh, was out <coughs> very early on in the day, Australia only needed seven wickets to win, with Jadeja looking like he might not be able to bat. With a reasonably long tail, it, India were probably up against it. Ben Pant played his natural game, and he did so while Pajaro was playing his. Can you explain why playing his shots was counterintuitively possibly the right thing to do for someone like Pant in that situation?
1: Yeah. Well, we should also mention in that injury list, it looks like Pant's going to be fine for the final test, but he was uh, like quite badly hurting during that innings. Couldn't keep during the third innings because of a blow he got on the elbow while batting in the first innings. Um, yeah, there's there's a really good article, uh it's from a it's from a while ago, but it's on the, the King cricket website based on an interview that they did with uh A B De Villiers, um, that talks about sort of like the mentality of approaching like a fifth set of rearguard. Uh and it kind of it talks about how like the, the, the best like batsmen are at their best when they're sort of thinking the least in a way, when they're reacting. I think that's probably the one thing that we uh realize the least and sort of like uh give critters the least credit for professional critters is how much like you don't get time to think when a ball is coming at 90 miles an hour, there's not a conscious decision really to play a shot or not play a shot. So if you have the conscious thought in your mind that I have to defend or leave that can actually like intervene in the split second that you need to actually get your bat down in time to hit it. I also think, I mean, just, just from a Christian point of view, pants innings had quite a big impact. I mean, he hit, it's, it's incredible to think that, you know, Nathan Lyon is what, probably Australia's second best ever spinner uh, and bowling on a, a fifth day pitch at the ground which traditionally has the most been in Australia and Richard Pant hit him out of the attack twice is an extraordinary thing and it meant that even after Pant was out Lyon never really got into his rhythm wasn't didn't bowl particularly well throughout the day really when he's been you know he's often like the, the player that wins Australia games in those situations so I think from a recruiting point of view there was a a huge impact even just from putting that pressure back on a bowler even if you know, unless you does something truly special in you, we're never going to have to chase the runs down. And I think that, yeah, there's that, that, that element of like playing an actual game is like a, it's a vexed thing because it's like, obviously players can be too reckless. They can like, you know, they can swing at everything and it doesn't work. But equally, if you ask a player who has never had to just defend before to just defend, it sort of adds another thought in their mind, which I think will kind of impinge on their ability to react, I guess. Richard Pant was brilliant, and I guess that's sums up
0: why. Joe, do you think that even though Pant was absolutely fantastic and played possibly the innings of the game, is it is it fair to, to to throw a little bit of criticism at his way for the shot he played when he got out, coming down the wicket to Nathan Lyon when he was on 97? I kind of thought that he wouldn't have played that shot if he wasn't on 97, if that makes sense.
3: I don't know, and from, from what Ben's saying, I, I agree completely, and you can't really have it both ways. You can't you can't praise them for for playing the shots and they're coming off and then criticising them. I, I think you've just got to say that was a fantastic innings uh, and that shot easily could have come off and we could have said what an amazing way to get to his hundreds. So I think you just have to say well played and to, to do that in the circumstances under the pressure India were on, carrying a bit of an injury was something quite special. And I think also a word on rahane obviously he didn't get a score in the last Test match, but uh, I, I publicly... I wrote in Winston Cricket Monthly, I questioned whether he would have the kind of snarl and overt tenacity that a captain is required to show in Australia, the way that Coley did last time. Uh, I wasn't really saying Rahani doesn't have it. I, I just don't know if that was part of his, his makeup. But he's absolutely shown in this series that he's as tough as they come. I mean, to take over the team after what had happened in the first test, to have the injuries that he's had to then play that knock in the second test, to see his side home. Uh, Obviously, as I say, didn't contribute runs in this test, but he's obviously got serious leadership attributes to hold the side together, given everything that was going on, the injuries, the racism allegations, the way he conducted himself through that, um, and was in stark contrast to the way Australia's captain conducted himself through that test match.
1: While we're talking about natural games, I think it's probably worth touching on Pajara, who got an unbelievable amount of stick really in the first innings for you know, defying one of the, you know, the, the greatest bowling attacks of modern times really, who were bowling as well then probably as they were in the 36 All Out, uh to get the to, to get his way to, to 50 odd, 170 odd. Uh sort of lots of strands to it saying that he was putting pressure on his batting partners. And what what was interesting for me is that so there was an uh, a spell on the fourth mm-hmm. morning where Smith was scoring about as slowly was as pajaro was at the start of his innings. And there was and this is when, you know, Australian really have anything to lose by Smith getting out at that point. And they were so far ahead in the game. Uh, it was kind of taking time out of the game. In the end, they probably could have quite used. Uh, and people were suggesting that Pajara just didn't have that other gear, which it just, it just smacked at people just having not really watched Pajara bat ever because actually that's kind of what he does. He kind of, a lot of the time, will take 150 balls to get to 50 and then will be scoring a, a run a ball or close to it thereafter. Like, he definitely does have the ability to to catch up after he's sort of blunted the bowlers for absolutely ages i think that it was like a completely typical Bajar innings part of the fact that he got out at 50 rather than carrying on to a, a a match defining 100 but obviously that's going to happen sometimes and yeah i thought that was a very wide of the mark and I so saw, i saw one stat flag on am that over the last two series he has faced about one in every four balls bowled by australia's
2: bowlers which is <laughs> ridiculous and shows that he's doing absolutely everything right i think it, it was partly a consequence of listening to to the TV commentary team for 7 sport in Australia that have only in the last couple of years taken on the, the the rights to test cricket and you know it's it's a very it's a very shiny and modern product and they have three commentators and they have all the all the the gimmicks and the gizmos and there's a big bash game that always follows within minutes of the end of a test of a test day and it was almost like i felt the commentators the subtext of what the commentators were saying is that this is, not good, this is not good viewing. This is not what we need to be presenting and promoting the game, ignoring, obviously, the absolute necessity of, of Pajara playing in that particular way. Uh, I don't think you'd have had that kind of tone of commentary five years ago, ten years ago, and certainly any further back than that. But I think it's very much a kind of, it's, it's a component of the way that TV companies in particular present their cricket now. You know, and Pajara is so much of the old world. He's almost a kind of caricature of the old world. That I think certain commentators, you know, from Warren and, and others, I think they struggle to compute that in the here and now. It's almost like we're drunk on on white on big cricket and wild cricket and quick cricket and and then you have this, this sort of atavistic way of way of batting. And it doesn't sit as comfortably with people as it once would have done. Um, perversely it sits very comfortably with the punters. If you scroll through Twitter, you know, Marina Hyde is popular and Pajara is popular on Twitter. And it seems to me like there aren't there, there aren't too many more. And yet Pajara, they were putting the booting on him on, on the television, which I thought was very odd. I was personally having a great time watching it at half two in the morning.
3: I think Phil's absolutely right. Although I do think that might reflect who he follows on, on Twitter as much as what's happening on, on Twitter. But I, I do absolutely agree. And we saw exactly the same thing the summer, just gone with with Sibley. Uh, and a lot of the criticism of him came from, I thought, what was a bit of a bald commentary team who were getting a bit fed up of watching him, and that clouded their appreciation of actually what he was doing, which was exactly what he was picked to do in the first place, and exactly how he played to get his spot. Um, and I think that that's a responsibility of commentators because they do, they do lead the discussions in some way, and also we know the impact they can have on players' careers. So I think it is worth some of these commentators taking a step back, remembering what they were like in their own career, how they would have played the situation. Rather than thinking it's all entertainment, 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 because people watching their team play want to watch their team win. And Pujara put his team in a reasonable position to do so and, and could have done even more so if it, it kicked on. And Sibley certainly done that for England so far.
2: On that first innings of India's, while it was an astonishing performance to save the game being 100 behind on first innings, they shouldn't have been all out for 240. They had two run outs, um, two run outs in the, in the top eight. They lost two very, very sort of soft wickets in the previous evening on day two. So while it is an extraordinary achievement to bat for 130 overs at the end, there will be a slight little voice in the back of their head thinking that they did miss an opportunity for a proper first innings lead there. Because Australia, they collapsed really to 330-odd, having been 200 for two, Smith batting with the tail, and they let India back in that game. But I guess in the fullness of time, that's the story of the Test match. You know, the, the classic ebbs and flows and ups and downs of a game. And in the end, you shake hands after five days. Well, kind of half shake hands, I suppose, after five days and move on to the next one.
1: I would, I would say on, on the coverage. So if, if you're watching on BT Sport in the UK, then you're getting the Fox cricket feed, I think. Uh, and so, I mean, it feels right in the, the Seven cricket. Ricky Ponting is on seven and was laying the boot in as well. Uh, but they, they have had some nice things go on, you know, that they've got Simon Taufel who's sort of providing the uh, Peter Walton role of uh, sort of analysing the umpire decisions and why they've given various things, which has added a lot of value I think, but yeah, and I think the other thing with Jar is like, it's hard to see what he could have done differently really, and I think that one of the things we neglect a bit when we talk, look, look at test attacks now versus test attacks in the past, is how strong the third bowlers are like, I think in the past, if you got through a new ball spell, you might have a slightly weaker bowler to target in quite a lot of teams but like Pajara was never going to be able to sort of hit Cummins and Hazelwood off their length and if you're saying you should have gone for more quick singles well India had three run outs I don't think that the, their intent in going for runs in, from that point of view was that was hurting them if anything so yeah just a very solution but I, I also would say that how long Pajara batted I mean I know India have loads and loads of injuries going into the fourth test but we might well see the impact of that on uh, in the fourth test, you know, Australia, India battled about 50 overs more than Australia in that game. Those bowls would be tired because they, you know, they, they weren't going to, they had a bit of lab shame, but it was the quicks who were doing a lot of it, especially because Lyon was struggling. And, and they we played three saw... in a
2: row, right? They played they played the same three quicks and three test matches all pretty much back to back. So if India do win the toss, you're absolutely right. That will be a factor. And if they do win the toss and Rohit Sharma gets through the first hour, then mark your card, he's going to get 100 because, I mean, he was cruising in that second innings.
1: Yeah. And we saw, there was a 2012 series Australia against Africa where Fafdi Bassi made his debut and got that ridiculous fourth innings block of 100. And then in the fourth test, uh, so in South Africa had been on the ropes the first two games actually. I think Mike Flahert got a double 100 in both, I think. And then South Africa just blew them away in the third test because Australia was so mentally and physically spent. And you wonder if this is like sort of the old cliche of the draw that feels like a win. And if that will possibly carry them through into the, into the fourth test. And
2: they would utterly deserve it if it did.
0: Phil, your moment of the week was to do with Rohit Sharma?
2: Yeah, just it was that second innings, but I could have picked either really. There were weird parallels to the, to the two innings in that he, he got through the new ball and the, the concern with Rohit initially is against the Red Bull first 10 overs, he might be a little bit loose outside of Stump, but if he can get through that, then obviously he can dominate any attack in the world. He made 30 odd in the first innings and limply caught and bowled from uh, Josh Hazelwood with about half an hour to go. And then the following day, um, or, or rather the end of day four, he was he did the same thing, but this time he was caught down at long long leg, having batted immaculately to to get to 50 odd. Just get to the close, 60 not out. See what you can create on day five. And you know we'd all especially if you're watching the UK, you kind of drift in and out of it as you as you move through the evening. So, thankfully, it was a Saturday night, so by half six, I was still just about with it. But yeah, I, I slouched off to bed after that because there is no player in the world that I like to watch as much as Rohit Sharma. And, and while Pant stole that final day, sure, if Rohit had been not out going into that final day, then absolutely anything would have been possible. Um, he, he has a peculiarly limp, record away from home I think he averages under 30 in test cricket he obviously he's a more potent player in Indian conditions but I do feel like his game is suited to Australian tracks and so and so it's very frustrating to see him get himself out in both of these innings and as I said just now if he can get through that first hour on a flat one at the Gabba I can see him really going big because he's undoubtedly a pedigree player um, you just want to see that. You want to see him have the last two or three years of his international career as a proper Test player, as well as obviously the one-day phenomenon that he is. Yeah, and and he answered those technical questions uh, as as much as he threw it away. Like, I mean, though the, the second oh, yeah.
1: innings Newball spell was like you won't see ma- many better Newball spells. Full stop. Let alone ones that actually don't don't end up taking a wicket. Um, so yeah, I think and it'll be interesting. It makes me actually more interested to see how he'll go. In England, if he'd still open it by the time India come here, then because before I was sort of writing him off as like a sort of a kind of that like he was struggling in these conditions essentially, considering what we would seen in the past. But this was actually this, 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 it was the, the innings of a proper opener really up until he played two very, very loose shots.
0: Pant being not out at lunch, uh, twice in the test match cost me about three hours sleep, <laughs> I reckon, over the week. It was just briefly on Pant, I think obviously his innings was amazing, but also the. F- he has to deal with so much. There can't be a young cricketer in the world who's under as much scrutiny as he, as he is. Absolutely phenomenal for him to play the innings that he did. Ben, do, do you think that Australia did anything wrong with the ball on the on the final day? Um, I thought Mitchell Stark in particular looked a little bit off the pace and wasn't as threatening as he has been at other times in the series.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you could probably throw that at line as well, as I said earlier. Um, equally though, Tim Payne dropped three catches. Uh, so they did. They did. Great opportunities. Uh, you know, they could have had Pant out earlier, and that would have made a huge difference. Uh, I thought that Hazelwood and uh, and Cummins were exceptional too. I guess I think they went possibly not at the bowling, but on the cap side. I think they probably went a little bit too defensive at Pant too soon. Maybe they thought he was going to hold out, so that was the reason to have Fielders in the deep. But equally, like uh, you know, that wasn't the first loose shot he played. The one that he got out. There were there was lots of chances for an edge, and uh, there were plenty they had like just, just, just the one slip or maybe even no slip at times. I think that, that, that those are probably the, the two passages, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, you know, there, there, there was a, there was a spell after tea when they were bowling, Clark Cums and Hazel I think were just bowling like short stuff to Ashwin. And I don't really know how they didn't, how they didn't get him out <laughs> in that point. There were a couple of reviews, a couple of sort of very, very things very close to the, to the bat. He was struck a few times. So I think they, they, those two bowl pretty well, Stark and Lyon. Probably would look back and think they could have been a bit better. I think they I mean, will look back even from a tactical point of view and think maybe he could have captured a bit better. Uh, but I think mostly it's credit to India because to, to get through just I mean just comes to him by themselves should be enough to play teams away on that day. So to get through them bowling near their best is is worthy of praise in itself, I guess.
0: We've not mentioned it yet, but Steve Smith was back in the runs with a century and a fifty. Cameron Green had a second innings eighty four that looked quite good. Will Pekofsky, who we talked about on last week's show after day one, is an injury doubt for the Gabba test after injury his shoulder. How how do you think Australia's top seven will look like at Brisbane if Pekofsky's not in it?
2: I think they'll be tempted to move Wade back up to open, I suppose. He did an okay job in the first test. He made a, you know, ugly but gritty 40-odd in the second innings, I think it was the first test, it might have been the second, I forget now. But anyway, he, he's, he's their kind of utility player, I suppose. They, they didn't really want to leave out Travis Head. Langer said he's not done much wrong, they still like him a lot. He's part of the inner sanctum. So, if Pekoski is done for, for a test match, then they'll probably move, move Wade up and bring, uh, bring Head back in. They're not going to go back to Joe Burns, I think that, that ship has sailed now. Um, so, yeah, I imagine they'll probably go that way. But he did look good, Pukowski. He looks like a proper proper good player, proper good test player. Yeah,
1: the The, the other option is Marcus Harris, who's been in shield runs, uh, another player that they, they like quite a lot. He was pretty close to playing this game, I think, if Pukowski hadn't, hadn't pulled up right. Uh, I guess the other thing as well, I like the wonder, so obviously we'll come onto it in more detail, and however you feel about sort of Payne's captaincy in general, I think this test has sort of made it kind of clear that Australia need to kind of just think more than they have been about the future. Even if he captains Australia through the ashes, you know, he's he's already 36 years old. He's going to be 37 by the time that series starts. He's not going on for too much longer. And I wonder if that might give them reason to sort of, you know, because Head still, you know, average is just under 14 test cricket. He's not done awfully. And he's the one that they've sort of talked most about as the potential next leader. If they might sort of, because Head and Wade was a bit of a toss up really. And if they might think actually that they need to give him proper, proper backing, for a, for a while yet, I guess, as as and and groom him and see if he
2: is the next player. And if, if he's not, they have a they
1: have a, a difficult decision to make because there's not a clear next candidate
2: after him. They really do have a d- difficult decision to make. You're absolutely right. Travis Head, um, you know, he's a good, solid workman-like, but ba- barely barely Test class number five from what I've seen. And you know, he, he has an OK record. Uh, he's made some useful, doughty runs here and there, but I think it would be an enormous job uh, to to put the captaincy onto his shoulders when let's be honest in in good times for Australian cricket Travis Head wouldn't get near that middle order so so it'd be a very very interesting call give it to Pat Cummins right yeah well this is it he's he's the deputy and that would all right it's thinking outside the box obviously because he's a bowler but that would absolutely make sense I think based on what they have and if Smith doesn't want it and they probably sensibly don't want to give it to him then Cummins seems to me as, as you say Joe the overridingly sensible option
3: it is sort of thinking outside the box, but it's only a very uh, kind of constrained box that cricket's created for itself. There's not, there's not really a reason for it. I mean, no. Cummins is obviously a bright bloke. Uh, he carries himself well. He's obviously got a huge amount of respect. Crucially, he seems to be able, I mean, famous last words, but he seems to be able to play pretty much all of Australia's test matches uh, and rest a bit in the white ball stuff. Um, if I was an Australian fan, he'd absolutely be who I'd want to, to be captain of my side. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Agreed, to
0: Moving on to what happened off the field. India made official complaints of racism after stumps on day three from the crowd, while play was stopped for eight minutes on day four following claims of more alleged abuse. This was pointed out by Mohammed Siraj on day four. Ben, pretty ugly and disappointing stuff.
1: Yeah, disgraceful. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was, It was, and it's, I think, almost as disgraceful as, as you've written in a piece, as has been sort of quite a lot of the reaction since then with the first instinct of a lot of Australian fans, even certain members of the media has been to seek ways to discredit Siraj, suggest that maybe it was only like that the sledging from the crowd could have been as mild as saying, welcome to Sydney, which is absolutely bonkers. But when you consider this a bloke, is, you know, given up the chance, as I said earlier, to be at his father's funeral to play at this test match. And when you consider the abuse that, that all characters kind of get from crowds, uh, you know, whenever they play, they have to be pretty thick scene characters to suggest that this wasn't a very, very serious incident, that India would just stop this test for you know, a bit of time-wasting, a bit of gamesmanship is, is abhorrent, really. And I think that, um, a lot of people who've been saying this kind of thing need to take a long uh, look at themselves. I think that uh, uh, kind of kind of whatever transpires about, you know, sort of the police action and that sort of thing, I think that we should rightly have, you know, a, uh, like we, we, should, we should have quite a stringent legal, I guess, definition of what constitutes racial abuse while socially wanting to take sort of like a slightly wider view. I think there are things that you can not be punished under the law for that we should still see as reasons to, to criticize these people for. And there were videos that came out that Pete, some people felt contained uh, racial slurs in them. I, personally, I feel that it's not, they're not clear enough to make that out, but whatever it is, if you go and look at those videos, you can hear that how the crowd are kind of sort of baying and sort of like, there's a a, a kind of disgusting kind of tone to the way that they're yelling at Siraj, which must be just absolutely horrible way to treat another human being. And that's what they are, you know, you can't, uh, just because these guys are professional sportsmen and because you paid a bit of money to go and see them doesn't mean you can just like subject them to bile for six hours on end. I think it was disgusting. And I think that Siraj deserves a, a huge amount of credit for, you know, a junior member of the team who tests in to. To take that kind of stand in the middle of a test match, I think, is, deserves a huge amount of credit. And uh, I think, yeah, India carried themselves very, very well. And uh, the Australia fans, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's awful, essentially.
0: Yeah, a lot of Australian supporters have pointed to um, a quote from Eyewitness that has been carried in a variety of Australian media outlets. The Eyewitness said, all these boys were doing is a bit of sledging of the player on the field. Uh, First it was Bumra, then they had a sledge against Siraj, they kept on calling him Shiraz and all that crap. Next thing you know they said, welcome to Sydney, Siraj. Just on that, if that is the extent of what they said, that is at absolute best naive and distasteful and at worst malicious. Changing the name of a Muslim to an alcoholic drink. The the reaction of people instinctively leaping to the defence of the people who are accused rather than the the victim in this, is what gives power to people to keep on saying the same thing. You know, people are emboldened by seeing passers-by basically do nothing and, you know, people online basically almost encouraging it by saying, oh, what was, what has been said is absolutely fine. I think New Zealand all-rounder Jimmy Neesham has made a few interesting points on Twitter this week, saying basically asking, why are we okay with abuse at cricket matches as long as it's not racist? Um, he said, I've always found it weird that people think abusive sledging from the crowd to players is totally acceptable as long as it's not racist. I've signed autographs for kids in the boundary while grown men behind them scream like I'm an effing C and everyone else laughs. It's bizarre. Yeah, I, th- I think w- what was also very depressing is I'm just not surprised by it. I think it, that kind of stuff happens quite a lot. So th- that's why all the more power to Siraj for, for for calling it out.
1: Yeah, and just, sorry, just to expand on your point, not to get too much into, into racial politics, but obviously names can very much be markers of ethnicity and race and uh, it's a way of sort of making someone feel other outside the norm is to make their name feel like something that is deserved to be mocked and made fun of especially when someone is a uh, like when it's clearly upsetting someone so yeah i just I, <laughs> it's, it's funny so like no they weren't being racist they just said this racist thing it's like a bizarre i mean I, and yeah racism goes far beyond just saying i hate x race it's much more insidious than that and that's why it deserves to be called that
0: on the field, Tim Payne got in trouble uh, on a couple of occasions during the test. He was heard uttering an audible obscenity after an umpire decision earlier on in the test before copping quite a lot of criticism for what he said to Ravichandra and Ashwin on day five. He, he, he basically called Ashwin a dickhead and uh, said that he had more friends than Ashwin, which was quite bizarre. Uh, he issued a statement today saying, uh, I want to apologise for the way I went about things. I'm someone who prides himself on the way he leads this team, and yesterday was a poor reflection of that. Um, My leadership wasn't good enough. I let the pressure of the game get to me. Yesterday, I fell short of my expectations and my team standards. I am human. I want to apologise for the mistakes I made yesterday. We've set really high standards over the last 18 months and yesterday was a bit of a blip on the radar. Joe, what do you make of all that?
3: I think it's a bit more than a bit of a blip. I mean, he deserves some credit for coming out and apologising, but it's just embarrassing more than anything else, uh, I, I find I find all his sledging incredibly annoying anyway. This idea that he's some sort of jester behind the stumps with these witty one-liners is, is so crap. It's like that guy you play club cricket with who you're always embarrassed by and you just want to shut up. But he's the Australian captain and he's doing this. Um, but then this test match was a bit different and that it wasn't him just trying to be funny. He had lost his cool and he's shown... Uh, Headingly previously that he's not a good captain under pressure. Uh, he's batted Australia out of some difficult positions and seems to be able to deal with the pressure in that situation. But on field, he can't handle it. Um, it was particularly embarrassing because he kept dropping catches uh, often just after he'd done his sledges. Uh, it was also mind-numbingly stupid because Ashwin is probably the most single-minded cricketer in the world. Did he really think he was going to get under Ashwin's skin, Ashwin? likes pissing people off that I'm sure that would would have kind of galvanized him more than anything and this line that people like me more than they like you which I think was the same line that he delivered to Coley I mean can you can you get any more pathetic it's also probably not true I'm not sure his bowlers would have liked him all that much as he shelled another uh, another chance so pretty embarrassing stuff from Tim Payne um I'm sure he would have been embarrassed himself when he looked back on it. As I say, he deserves partial credit for apologising. But it wasn't, a, it wasn't one incident. It was a, it was a series of them. Um, it's probably worth also adding that we can get a bit sucked into England-Australia rivalry, particularly with the Nashes on the horizon. And Joss Butler of Vernon Philander uh, just early last year was completely unacceptable. Uh, Butler lost his rag and, and just <laughs> complete overreaction. So it's obviously not just Australian critics' but I have to say there's a personal thing with, with Tim Payne that really gets under my skin. Uh, and this was uh, an instance of it going too far and, and him losing control of that situation.
0: Bill, Payne has, has got a lot of praise for his apology today. Do you think that Australian cricket should just accept it and move on? Or do you think they should be asking serious questions about their captain?
2: I think they should be asking questions about their captain as a cricketer and as a tactician. Um, I don't think we need to, to overplay the spectacular naffness of his behaviour on the final day. Um, you know, it was described as a war of words, that he disgraced himself, that it sullied his reputation. For me, it was more pathetic than that. Um, I can understand why people would take up that position, uh, and I can understand that in the the swirl around it all, people... They feel it very, very closely, and, and it moves into moral and ethical questions of on-field behaviour and so on. In in the glare of modern TV, it's, it's needed, needs to be pointed out. But personally, I, I yeah, I just thought it was just hopeless. As Joe says, it, it's it's the dickhead in your team that you're embarrassed about. It, it, it was that kind of role, really. Um, seemed to me he was guilty of, of hypocrisy more than anything else of being not quite as sort of pearly white as, as he's presented. And as you say, he, he's been given a lot of credit. I guess partly the the, the add-on question there is, is whether he's been characterized as pearly white because he came post Cape Town or whether he has actively cultivated that personality. And that will be for, for other people to debate and people will have their own judgments on it. Personally, the, the kind of the rush to moral outrage and to outdo one another and how appalled one one person is against the next person that doesn't massively get get me riled up I have to be honest and I think it's sometimes important to slightly separate the act which was pathetic and regrettable and you know he'd woken up the following morning and known as he says himself well I'm I'm the fool here from the person themselves and the intricacies and the complexities of an individual um just as we sometimes rush to glorify and lionize a person for what often not very much. The same thing often applies on the other side of the ledger. Um, Yeah. uh, He'll he'll hang his head and his days are probably numbered as a cricketer, as a cricketer and a captain, but I wouldn't be uh, putting a cross next to his name particularly for, for what looked to me overall like, some mildly re- regrettable behaviour at the end of an astonishing game of cricket. I've seen it happen with many better and worse people than him, including myself. It's upended many a person a game of cricket, you know, and we all do things that we sometimes don't mean. But
3: hypocrisy is, is absolutely right, I think. And the problem Australia have got here is they basically, a documentary was created to project this image of how they were going to behave. And Tim Payne, you talk about, has he cultivated that image or has it been cultivated for him? Well, I would say it's definitely both based on the evidence of that documentary which was obviously we know it was checked by Australia before it was put through production uh, and when you put something out like that and say this is the team we're going to be it does become tricky and, and Australian cricket has, has had these problems in the past this 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 line that they talk about not crossing and now it's this team culture and it means that you have to make these kind of groveling apologies afterwards because you've said you're going to be wanting and then you fall so far beneath it um as, as you say, I, I agree. I, I, I don't get too upset about the things that were actually said. I don't think he hugely crossed the line in that regard. I think it, it was just um, just a poor show.
2: Yeah, I, I, I guess. Sorry, Ben, just, just briefly. I don't know you have good points to make <laughs> on this, but just, I, I guess just to check myself, is there some kind of corollary, some sort of subliminal corollary with what you've seen flowing from the bleachers onto the pitch and then what gets projected on the back of, what Tim Payne has said and whether if, if you're looking at the overall kind of discourse around cricket matches from crowds to players to players back again and that uneasy relationship that they have on social media as well on the one hand it democratizes and brings players and fans together on the other hand it drives them further apart perhaps there is another element to this whole discussion that it's one ugliness begets ugliness you know and, and vulgarness feeds, feeds vulgarness off the pitch as well, possibly. That, that was pretty much exactly my point. And obviously, you know, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. It's, it's, uh, but other, other
1: crowds are, obviously, you know, it's, it's not a an you know, Australian problem, crowd abuse, you know, that the, you know, the Balmy Army, we've all sort of probably enjoyed videos, maybe of them sort of singing it, Mitchell Johnson, that sort of thing, which in hindsight, you know, you wonder how that much, how much that was affecting him and how, how nice that kind of was. But it does seem like most cricketers sort of say that, australia interestingly Ashwin actually said after stunts day four that it's worse at sydney than other australian cities which i thought was quite interesting um but yeah i absolutely think that the behavior of a national team sort of feeds into behavior from uh players at club cricket and then into the into the crowds as well and i also think that while i i, I do agree i so i largely echo your points i think the the reason why this is an issue for tim Payne is because he's if, if you look at sort of his record as Australia captain, and obviously, you know, he's without Smith and Warner and that sort of thing, but his win-loss record is not great. He uh, as you know, he lost to India at home, which not Australia captain had done before. Very few Australian captains get through losing two series at home. They do happen to lose this one. Uh, he obviously doesn't average each amount with a bat and has started dropping catches as well. So I think, but the thing is, is that the fact that he has been this big ahead for a new era is what has shielded him from that criticism. You know, like you sort of think that if Australia didn't have Tim Payne, they would be in a worse situation from like a PR point of view, if not from an on-field point of view. Um, and this sort of undoes some of that. But I also think that while this is maybe part of the course in terms of international cricket as a whole, you look at, you know, Josh Butler, Devone Philander, I don't think honestly that most international teams, when their opposition have been racially abused for the past two days, would choose the fifth day to go in that hard on them. I think that that is actually pretty bad, to be honest, like to... To choose that to undergo a sustained sort of campaign of mental disintegration is, is pretty poor. Cool.
2: And I don't dispute that. I just want to add one, one last thing. At the risk of alienating lots of Australian listeners here, um, while it is feverish and febrile in Australia, and I remember the first time I went to the Gabba and watched cricket, I was pretty taken aback and I'd been warned and I'd read about it beforehand but I was still quite taken aback. Same time I've, I've watched cricket at the Oval, I've watched cricket at Trent Bridge and Edgbaston and been, and had days ruined by boorishness from English fans as well. And also uh, our, our cricket team, our beautiful cricket team is, is by no means a beacon of, of, of sort of overriding decency Ben Ben Stokes never gets through a day without calling at least half a dozen people dickheads and he almost does it in such a cartoon harmless way that no one no one really seems to give a toss uh Jimmy Anderson is is not dissimilar if you ask anyone in county cricket who are the most foul-mouthed aggressive in your face then those two names are often quite near the top uh and and we don't we don't queue up to to denigrate them um it's it's an expression of, of of the culture of the game in that particular part of the world. Uh, And while Australia does it in a certain way, so do we, let's be honest.
0: Well said. Um, And then finally, there was a video of Steve Smith basically marking his guard on the fifth day that went viral when India were batting with suggestions that he was effectively pitch tampering. Um, Betty Holford asks, do you accept the explanation given by Payne as to why Steve Smith was tampering with Pant's guard?
2: No, Phil. Anyone? No, no. I don't accept that. Really, you think he was deliberately scuffing the guard to get in ahead of it? You just don't go there. You just don't go there. It's not your place to go there. I mean, in in the, the grand scheme of things, it's not. You know, it's not overly important. Granted, but uh, it was un, it was murky and it was underhand and it was skullduggerous, Uh And anyone who tries to convince me that he absentmindedly did it. While he's playing a pant like shot with his left hand through the covers before then s- s- scratching his guard, no, no I'm not even there. I not thought
0: my... the way he was actually scratching his guard was just, I mean, Smith, you know, let, let's be real here, is a very odd guy. Like, uh, before the test, there was a video that his wife put on Instagram of uh, Smith in complete full whites on the night before a test match, shadow batting this, this guy, uh, you know, he. he yeah, he has his mannerisms and he just, I think, does a lot of things without thinking. I think the the taking of the guard, I thought, was just him in autopilot. And I don't think it affects anything. You know, the the, the, the guard's been taken. and uh, There would be a very obvious mark on the ground. So I don't think him scratching his foot a couple of times would have done anything. I don't think he did it deliberately. and I think he was probably initially just imagining uh, batting initially. I don't think there's anything in it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I disagree with Payne's explanation in, in only that I don't think Smith was just shadow backed. I think he was visualising from Pant's point of view what it would be like facing up to Nathan Lyne in particular, looking at those rough patches. I think so. So there's a slightly extended video that's since been posted on Twitter that shows the stump cam footage from just before Smith arrived, which shows the sort of the pitch preparers coming and sweeping the pitch and then re like painting the crease line, which would give Pant reason to, to remark his guard anyway. I would say I didn't realise that it was his wife that had taken the video of him batting in the, in the four whites, which adds an extra <laughs> layer of humour to the whole thing. Like, I mean, what, what a man gets up to in, his, in a, a hotel room when he's on his own is, you know, <laughs> his, his own business. But, but for someone to be like, sorry, love, I'm just going to flip into full kit and uh, have a bit of practice, is, uh, especially when, you know, they've been away for, what, five months in the lead-up to, to New Year is uh,
3: quite something. Go. I'm a bit torn on it. It does conceivably seem the sort of odd thing that Smith might do. Um, But, I mean, his his track record suggests that he he does do some strange things under pressure which aren't necessarily within the rules. That said, the the main thing with this, I'm keenly aware this is the sort of conversation that had in front of casual cricket fans or potentially interested cricket fans, they will just turn off immediately Mm. or possibly be so confused Mm. by what we're talking about that they'll engage with it just to find out what's going on. But yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a
2: good one for us to go into too much depth on. No, maybe that's what, the conversation we had a couple of days ago. I mean, you, cricket is weird at the best of times, but this really is taking <laughs> This, it to this it. is too weird. <laughs> yeah. So let's right. move on. Yeah, I, would
1: say, I don't think it's malicious. But I think it was
2: advised. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. No, he did do it deliberately. Just, just another questionable. Uh, aspects of a peculiar week moving on
0: <laughs> from Sydney to Gaul England series against Sri Lanka gets underway on Thursday Moen Ali has been formally ruled out of the first test and according to various reports is increasingly unlikely to play the second test since the last pod there was an intra-squad warm-up game that lasted only a day due to rain Joe Root scored an unbeaten half-century as did Ollie Pope who isn't actually in the squad because he's not yet fit enough to field there was an unbeaten 46 for Dan Lawrence a 46 for Zach Crawley, uh, and not much else in the way of runs. James Anderson, Ollie Robinson, and Jack Leach all took cheap twofers. Ben, how do you see the series going?
1: Um, personally, I think uh, I would make Schlanker favourites. To be honest, I mean, you know, they're, 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 they have injuries as well, and they're, they're not the same team they were before. But I think that actually, like, I think I think they'll be eyeing up Johnny Bairstow as a in number three as a potential weak link, considering that they'll be more like, they've got a quite a good seam attack this time if, as long as they all feel upright um, and they'll look at, I think he only faced like seven balls of pace in his 100 there last time and they will hopefully, they'll be planning to buy quite a lot more of that to him now, I think if you look at England's sort of top sits overall in terms of uh, experience in Asia experience overall, recent experience, there's not a huge amount to go on and it's going to take sort of Joe Root especially to really step up, I think for England to come away with it. And yeah, it's, it's hard. To, I don't think England have ever been more undercooked for a series away from home. So may, maybe Sri Lanka to win the first, catching England cold, England to win the second possibly. Uh, but yeah, I think that Sri uh, Lanka got a
0: pretty good
3: chance. Joe? Uh, yeah, I'd go one all. I think it's going to be tough for England to, to get going on the first test, but I'd expect, I do I still think even with their absences, they're a, they're a stronger team. Um, particularly with Sri Lanka's spin attack probably as, as weak as I can ever remember it, I think. Um, it's a fascinating England lineup though. There's, there's always some interest to be had when a few of the big guns aren't there. And Besto at three, whichever way it's going to go, is, is fascinating. Lawrence at five is obviously, it's weird to think that he's only 23 and it feels like a massively overdue selection, or one we've been touting for, for several years on this podcast every other week. Um, so it's good that he's got his his shot. And then um, it'd be fascinating to see how England's spinners go. I think um, Moen being absent means that they will just go with the two if there was any suggestion they might have played three previously. Uh, and it's starting if, if Bess and Leach go the distance or at least can't take wickets in Sri Lanka with an India tour just around the corner, then it gives England an absolutely massive headache. So these are two very big test matches for, the, for, for Leach, who's barely... Bold for a long time, and, and Bess, who didn't, it was kind of serviceable but didn't look hugely threatening um, on admittedly some less spin friendly tracks in England this summer.
0: Mm, I find it quite odd that um, it's presumed and kind of accepted that best I will just bat three. I was picking like my England 11 for yesterday, and I didn't pick him because out of him, Lawrence, and folks, you're basically picking two of three. Berstow's barely played any first-class cricket in the last two years. Um, even in one-day cricket, he still gets bowled, bowled by balls that come into him. Sri do have a decent pace attack this time round. Ben Fokuss has played the series last time, and Dan, uh, Dan Lawrence is um, you know, the next man in who's, who really deserves a go in the England top six. So, yeah, personally, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Bairstow struggles. We haven't really seen anything to suggest that he won't. Uh, but you
3: don't think... You accept that he will bat three. You're just saying you wouldn't necessarily do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and I
1: would say that I know that Ben Fokes obviously, part of the conversation that was often neglected was how much he struggled with the bat during the 2019 summer. I think there are a lot of mitigating circumstances there with you know, him having been messed around by England, him, him taking on the Surrey captaincy. Uh, but he made, was it 100 he made uh, back after leaving the England bubble that looked exactly like Ben fokes back to his best? I think, I mean, if you watch him in Creek, he has a very, and in that Schlanger series, has got a very unfussy way of accumulating runs. And in it, it can make him kind of look like a player who's kind of too good for that level. And he didn't look like that in 2019. And admittedly, it was, you know, one game, to the England bubble the whole time. But that's what he looked like in, in that innings in 2020. So I think that, yeah, there's, there's less reason to sort of hold that 2019 form against him now as well. And yeah, I think we're in an odd situation, to be honest, where if Ben Folks was a worse keeper... He might well have the best chance of playing in Sri Lanka because England like might want to play him as a specialist batsman because of how good he was last time. But you can't really pit Ben Foch as a specialist batsman and not give him the gloves. And then you can't, uh, then Butler doesn't get the prep he needs of head of the India series. So I think that's a slightly odd situation they've got themselves into. But.
0: Caleb Whiteford asks, with all the talk about Lawrence alongside Crawley's preference to bat at three... How would you fit Crawley, Lawrence, Root, Stokes and Pope into the middle order? And that's before you even mention Bairstow, Butler and folks. Go on, Joe.
3: Well, I think we're probably jumping ahead a little bit, aren't we? We should probably see how, how Lawrence goes first. But England have got some, certainly some of the most exciting batting talent that that I can remember. We don't know how some of them are going to adapt to, to test cricket. Um, it'd be fascinating to see how Lawrence goes. Very promising signs with Pope and Crawley. There could be some real real headaches in the years to come. Um, I don't think it's one... I mean, these are always fun games, aren't they? I don't think it's one we need to worry about too much, uh, not least because of the fixture schedule. Uh, There are so many games. uh, Lots of people are going to get a go over the next 12 months. uh, And it will just be who comes out looking the best, who who gets the the big test matches, the marquee test matches as they come along. Um, I think it's it's easy to forget how good Pope looked because Crawley's come along, because Pope's got injured... Uh, we shouldn't forget that he is a hugely exciting first-class batting talent who's got a, a substantial record behind him. Whereas Lawrence has been a little bit more hit, hit and miss, albeit much stronger recently. So I think I think Pope and Crawley are going to be locked in for the for the next few years unless something goes uh, goes particularly wrong. And Lawrence is just going to have to fight his way through that.
1: I guess if, if Lawrence pulls up trees, the option they'll have is a. Uh... Uh, promoting Crawley to, to open, I guess, Yeah. Um, which is, and, and, and I think the thing is to, to remember is that, yeah, it, it, England's first choice top six or their first choice bowling attack is much more of a pub discussion now than actual one with sort of imports because uh, because of how much players are going to have to rest with, you know, fatigue and the, the amount they're playing and that sort of thing. I think that whoever ends up getting left out will still end up playing quite a lot of test cricket in the next couple of years, I guess, mm. even if they're not in that. Top, mm. seven, top six, top seven,
0: and then a final question, which is related to both series going on at the moment. Gurav Thakur asks: Do England have any chance in India if the hosts feature a second-string bowling honour without possibly Ashwin, Bumrah, Jadeja, Shami, Ishan, <laughs> and Umesh?
3: We we haven't found any match-winning spinners in the last month. Is is I think the the main issue we have there, and I think. Uh, a lot of those Indian injuries, I don't. I don't think they're going to still be. I mean, Bumrah isn't likely to miss out on the England series. I don't think Ashwin as well. Um, and the thing is, India have just got so much depth, so much depth that even if those players are missing, it gives England more of a chance. But I think of the big challenges ahead for England this year: the T20 World Cup, the Ashes, India home, India away. I think India away is still. The far, the, by far, the hardest of those of those four to to come away with a victory.
1: Yeah, you wonder actually whether if if if, if all those paces are injured for the England series, whether India might sort of revert slightly more to type. because they've prepared like pretty fair pitches recently, although still obviously helpful for spin. Whether if they might go a little bit more the direction of like a, like pitches that turn a little bit more on day one, not 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 rank turners, but just a little bit more, because you know they have. Like even with those spinners injured, like Kuldi Yadav is a very, very good spinner. Shabazz Nadim, who made his debut against South Africa and has like been like incredible in the ranch Trophy over the years, will definitely be able to come in and kind of slot pretty seamlessly. And if it is a spinning track, so I guess that might be something that we see possibly if if India like are feeling a bit spiky, I guess. But yeah,
0: Ben, what was your moment of the week?
1: Uh, so well, my, my, mine was from from the other. The other international cricket, the return of ODI cricket after more than a month was UAE facing Ireland, and it was just a, a very good game of cricket, basically. Ireland made 2.69 first up. Paul Sterling, as he always does, made a, a very good, very solid 100, uh, and it looked like it was only going one way when UAE were 50 for three in reply. Yeah, then UAE just proves it, essentially, a, a, a near double-century fourth-wicket stand between Jindan Gapil-Rizwan and Mohammad Usman, uh, both hit centuries, and they ended up winning with and over to spare. And I mean, you know, I mean, Ireland are a, a, a very good ODI side. We saw that in the summer when they sort of gave England a, a decent go in the first two games and then won the third. And I think, you know, so if England were the world champions heading into that series and then Ireland beat them to take on that unofficial world title that now makes UAE champions of the world. Uh, but it's just great to see a bit, of, a bit of strength and depth in international cricket and, uh, yeah, a good moment for them. Obviously, the, the series has now been uh, delayed quite significantly by Uh, succession of positive tests for COVID-19. Yeah, that was a a nice game to follow in the background.
0: That'd be quite fun if that's how the World Championship worked, like boxing. It'd be very fun, yeah. Anyway, finally, Joe, what was your moment of the week?
3: Um, So mine was an interview I did a few days ago. Uh, I think Phil might have mentioned it on the last show. We've been compiling uh, the great disruptors of English cricket of the 21st century for the upcoming issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Uh, so we picked out 21 of these people uh, who we profile, interview, speak to people about. Um, and there's some big names in, lots of familiar names, a couple that won't be so familiar. Uh, and one of those was the one I'm picking out now, Stuart Robertson, who is a 52-year-old Winchester-based brand strategist. But he he comfortably made this list because he is credited as being the inventor of T20 cricket um, back in 2001. He was working as the ECB's marketing manager and had been tasked with um, reversing the decline in county cricket attendances, which had, I think, he told me, there'd been a seventeen percent decline in a five-year period. So worrying times, which led him to do this, um, lead this enormous piece of marketing research, which was the biggest that English cricket had ever done. Which, as you hadn't realised, was paid for by Channel Four because they were the um, UK live broadcast rights holders at that time. Uh, they, they put up two hundred grand and. Spoke to people all around the country, did fo- uh, thirty or forty focus groups, and then did four and a half thousand in-home surveys, which sounds so archaic <laughs> now already. Um, but to find out why people weren't watching cricket and what they could do to to um, change their minds, and T20 was was obviously the result of that. Um, and he's been widely credited as as kind of leading that and getting the numbers to convince not only the ECB, but then also the counties to vote for T20 in the first place. Um, not that it was actually especially convincing vote. It was 11-7 in favour of T20 cricket. And uh, I asked you, Robertson if, if they hadn't voted for it at that time, did he think T20 would have come about? And he said maybe, but the game was so conservative, then it would have taken a long time for the vote to come round again. So who knows where cricket could have gone? I mean, obviously a huge moment for not only English cricket, but... But world cricket, uh, and obviously there are big echoes here, and I put this to him, of, of what's going on with the 100 now and and the opposition to it. He said it's totally reminiscent. It's literally just the same. Uh, he recalled going on the Today programme on the day T20 launched and uh, Brian Close coming on as a, as a caller uh, unexpectedly and telling him that this was going to kill the game uh, and batsmen's techniques. And, and some might argue that Brian Close has proved right uh, but I think most of us would agree cricket is in a better place with T20. Now with the 100 still up for grabs, who knows? It is, it is, he says it's literally the same. It is obviously different because it's going outside the 18-county model. And I think that's what's upset so many people. Um, but it was interesting to speak to, to a bloke who a lot of people won't have heard of who has played such an influential role in what English cricket looks like now.
0: Is he still involved in cricket in any way? Or was he just a brand strategist?
3: He's, he's just left cricket. So he went and worked for um, Warwickshire and Hampshire. So he worked with Rob Bransgrove at Hampshire and was influential in creating the, the Rose Bowl and everything that came with it, now the Aegeus Bowl. So he was kind of a, a disruptor in that sense as well. Hampshire very much framed themselves as that kind of shaking up English cricket. Uh, but now now he just works for uh, outside of cricket. He says he kind of uh, still loves cricket as a game, but has done what he feels he can in it and is looking at new avenues. Um, but he's certainly watching what's going on with the 100 with interest
0: interesting anyway cheers everyone cheers Phil Joe Ben this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast thanks for listening we'll be back next week to look back at the Gaul and Brisbane Tests if you like the show tell your friends and leave us a five star review on the podcast app. it all helps cheers
3: Podcast Network.